Chapter 5, Anne's History. Do you know, said Anne confidentially, I've made up my mind to enjoy this drive. It's been my experience that you can nearly always enjoy things if you make up your mind firmly that you will. Of course, you must make it up firmly. I am not going to think about going back to the asylum while we are having our drive. I'm just going to think about the drive. Oh, look, there's one little early wild rose out. Isn't it lovely? Don't you think it must be glad to be a rose? Wouldn't it be nice if roses could talk? I'm sure they could tell us such lovely things. And isn't pink the most bewitching color in the world? I love it, but I can't wear it. Redheaded people can't wear pink, not even in imagination. Did you ever know anybody whose hair was red when she was young, but got to be another color when she grew up? No, I don't know as I ever did, said Marilla mercilessly. And I shouldn't think it likely to happen in your case either. Anne sighed. Well, that is another hope gone. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. That's the sentence I read in a book once, and I say it over to comfort myself whenever I'm disappointed in anything. Welcome to Kindred Spirits, a conversation about the ways Anne Shirley has shaped our lives. I'm Erica. And I'm Jean-Danielle. And we are Kindred Spirits. This week, we're reading Chapter 5 through the lens of childhood PTSD. But first, a brief recap of Anne's recap of her life. At the beginning of the chapter, Anne is talking and talking and talking as she and Marilla set out for White Sands. And in fact, this whole drive, the whole chapter takes place as they're driving. And as you've already heard, claims to be unable to wear pink, tells us about her graveyard of buried hopes. Marilla asks Anne to tell her what she knows about herself. Anne asks if she can talk about what she imagines instead. Marilla says no, but then Anne proceeds to talk about her imagination anyway, because what is memory if not a close relative of imagination? Anne reveals to us that although she's an 11 year old who has never been to school, she's been reading Romeo and Juliet. Her parents were educated but poor, died when she was three months old, Anne lived with Mrs. Thomas until she was eight, Mrs. Hammond until she was 10, and was only four months in the orphan asylum and turned 11 there in March and came to Green Gables in May. We establish firmly and clearly that three sets of twins is too many, that eight children is too many. And in the end, Marilla finds herself capable of some imagination and develops sympathy towards Anne. So, Jean-Danielle, you wanna get us started? Absolutely. Anne's life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. In the very immediate context of this chapter, it seems like she's saying that, melodramatically, as per always, about disliking having red hair. Certainly, I think that's how Marilla tends to react to it. It is this physical appearance vanity. But of course, the chapter proves that Anne's not being melodramatic or exaggerating. The red hair is the small tip of the iceberg of a genuine graveyard of buried hopes. So one of the things that I love so much about Anne of Green Gables and why it resonates with me profoundly in my own life is that 
when I was 11, my mother died and I moved in with a family with eight kids. And my goodness, this was a good book for me to see at that point of my life. This is why despite being over a century later and a different gender, I nonetheless can say that Anne Shirley is one of the most relatable characters in literature I've ever experienced in my life, certainly ever experienced in childhood. So I wanted to look at childhood PTSD. And I want to be very clear that neither Erica nor I are qualified to diagnose people who are living now. And we are extra not qualified to make a formal diagnosis of anybody who didn't live in the past. But there are trends and patterns we can look at. Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote sensitively about all kinds of neurodiversity and mental illness long before many of them had the formal names they now have. So I think that's an important thing as we look at her works and her character sketches to see how she has a profound sensitivity to things, even if she doesn't have the modern labels for them. From the Child Mind Institute, and I will share a link in the show notes, we have a simple list of three things that we can see in the behavior of children who are experiencing childhood PTSD. One is intrusive memories, two, avoidance and numbing, and three, increased arousal. So intrusive memories is fairly self-explanatory. Avoidance and numbing can be any technique one uses to not feel what one is feeling. And Anne has a few of these techniques that we can look at in the chapter, but vivid imagination is one. And she begins with that willful optimism, that deliberate choice to enjoy this drive. But she doesn't enjoy it. That is an avoidance technique. And then increased arousal, which is, that's what Marilla, I think, sees in Anne most. These reactions that seem completely over the top, but are in fact not a reaction to the thing just most recently discussed. And I'd point out that I've seen plenty of people, including myself, who face some kind of tragedy or crisis and handle the initial crisis really well, and their first breakdown into tears will be a few hours or days later over something like a door being jammed, a window not opening, something very minor that seems totally disproportionate, but it's because the avoidance has been so long. So I just wanted to, yeah, so I wanted to just kind of frame that we're going to be looking at Anne's story and the way that she behaves as a result of her story through this lens of what are the traumas that she genuinely endured and how is she demonstrating intrusive memories, avoidance and numbing and increased arousal. So logically, I think it's important to talk about what traumas she faced. I'm particularly interested when we get there and talking about intrusive memories, because although Anne is such a clear focal point in, well, in the first four or five books in this series, we don't get inside her head a lot. We hear what she tells other people about what's inside her head. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about the ways we can get some of that interiority with her. One of the things I find interesting about, well, interesting is the wrong word, but curious perhaps is a better one, is that so much of the trauma that happens to Anne isn't trauma that she can explicitly remember. That she was a tiny infant when her parents died. She, either before she could remember in the case of her parents or 
ongoing rather than acute. The description of childhood PTSD you have here refers to events. And Anne, I think the way Marilla sums it up is um, evidently she did not like talking about her experiences in a world that had not wanted her. So it's Anne's entire first 11 years of life that tells her she's not wanted rather than a moment or an incident. Yes. And one of the things with the, the traumatic events and it's in much of the literature, very explicit, particularly with childhood PTSD, is that having it recounted to you counts as a traumatic event. So parents dying is a traumatic event even if it happened when you were too young to remember because it's presumably a, a story that she's told. And it's a story she's told uh, in the previous households explicitly to explain her lack of truly belonging. So it's not just- that Yes, to explain why she's such a burden. It's the explanation as to why you don't really belong here. You're not one of us. And certainly this isn't the only piece of literature to delve into that kind of childhood belonging question. Les Miserables does it with Eponine and Cosette in very different and creative ways of approaching the childhood trauma that both of them faced with the same terrible adults, but for different reasons. So she knows that her parents have died and she knows that that's why she doesn't belong. And she does channel a lot of her sense of why she's unloved or unlovable into her red hair and body image issues as a complication or amplification of other questions of lovability are as pertinent as always. And poor Marilla doesn't know when she's being Marilla and saying, well, I think your red hair is likely to stay red. She doesn't know that she's then heaping more trauma on Anne by saying what she perceives to be the unadorned truth. Yes. And, and I mean, before kinds... hearing Anne's story, I can't blame Marilla for that. She's, she, she's doing what she knows how to do, which is describing the world as she sees it. I think if Anne had said, if Anne had asked the same question at the end of their trip, I'm not sure Marilla would have answered the same way. I'm not sure Marilla would have answered because I'm not sure she's capable of <laughs> uttering what she would consider a falsehood, but I'm not sure she would have answered quite so bluntly. But she can learn how to utter truth in more helpful ways. And there are so many true things people could and do say to Anne that are not helpful. You know, I was oh, thinking- We haven't even gotten to the, to Rachel Lind yet. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of like my personality left to unchecked, you know, what the, the truth I would want to tell Anne that would come out in the least helpful way first and then I have to backpedal is, oh, honey, people don't dislike you because of your red hair. And then I'd realize, <laughs> oh, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> as uplifting as I had meant. Let me backtrack. But Anne wants something to be controllable. I think that's also an important part for all of us when we're facing rejection or fear of rejection is we want to believe that we can identify why and that we can change it. And while it is a physical appearance question, hair is one of the most changeable aspects of our physical appearance. Stay tuned. Foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. Because 
Anne is dealing with these traumas and avoidance and numbing is one of her techniques. Marilla's approach of saying, I don't want any of your imaginings. Just you stick to bald facts. I think qualified and good therapists, which as I've mentioned, neither Erica nor I are, would probably debate whether or not this was a good move in helping and get through the avoidance. Well, and the note I made before we had the conversation about childhood PTSD was that Marilla tells Anne to stick to the facts. So Anne sticks to facts that she's been told by others. She doesn't remember her infancy. She couldn't possibly remember her infancy. And so the quote facts are actually just her imagination based on what she's been told by somebody else. It's a, it's an imagination of what she thinks the truth was rather than an imagination of what she wishes the truth was. And there may not be much more truth in the quote facts that Marilla asks for than in what Anne would have imagined about herself. I do find though that when Anne describes her mother and her father and the home they had together, there is still a degree of kind of willful positivity and, and nostalgia. Even though within a few sentences, this story results in a young couple dead of a fever with a three-month-old baby, this whole paragraph would be described as cottage core and how perfectly beautiful the setting and bucolic the situation and lovely the costumes would have been. Um, it would make a wonderful Instagram post shortly before they got the fever. And I think that's also important in Anne's coping is to believe that there's a base level of fundamentally possible beauty in her life. Even if it was only for two months at the very beginning that she cannot remember, to imagine that that must have been perfect, I think is a foundation for believing that things can be perfect again. What I really wanna know is where Anne has gotten this idea that mothers love their children. And I know this sounds incredibly dark, but Anne's firsthand experience of mothering is Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond. And it doesn't seem like they treated their biological children a lot better than they treated Anne. That um, I'm just checking in the text to make sure what I'm saying is true and not co-opted from a screen adaptation. Yeah, Mrs. Hammond divides her own children among her relatives. She doesn't keep all of her own babies with her. And then she goes off to the States without, potentially without any of her own children. So that's the mothering strategy that Anne has been living with for as long as she can remember. I want to extend Mrs. Hammond as much of my sympathy as possible. She was as stated at her wits end. And I don't mean that to imply that she made a wrong decision for her family. It just sounds like she wasn't a warm and fuzzy mother, the way Anne imagines her own mother to have been. Mm -hmm. And by talking about a rose being as sweet by any other name, it's clear that Anne has either been reading Romeo and Juliet or, or something that quotes Romeo and Juliet. 
and I don't know where she would get good mothers in Shakespeare either. There certainly aren't any in Romeo and Juliet, and there aren't any in any other Shakespeare that I can think of either. There are a couple debatably good fathers, but no good mothers. <laughs> so I, I guess I just really sitcoms know. completely reverse centuries later. Yeah, um, I just kind of want to know where she's gotten this idea that her mother loved her, which probably is true. Yes. I just, you know, where has she gotten that information? Because it wasn't from the women who were looking after her. It is an interesting point you bring up because I'm now becoming self-aware of some of the projection I clearly did on Anne's situation. Because yeah, I think with Mrs. Hammond, we see kind of a clear, really, I think there's kind of a parallel with... Um, well, Les Miserables, again, where Cosette is definitely abused, but the biological daughter isn't treated notably better. They're just consistently cruel. Whereas, you know, my projection on this text had always been that she was treated as an outsider in these families. And that would be the source of the uh, mistreatment. Uh, to go to why I resonated with this so much as an 11-year-old was... The, the family I lived with after my mother's death were well-established, respected people in the community, had eight children, and are widely known in an entire small town as these perfectly good paragons of Christian motherhood and fatherhood. And I know them as cruel and abusive. But there was a distinction in how they treated me versus their biological children, which made my experience all the more unbelievable to people. So I wonder with Anne, did she see a healthier model towards some of the children? Maybe, maybe not. I think she also did steep herself in literature to whatever extent she could. I think it's an excellent literary history question though. It was like, well, what book could she have been reading in the 1890s with such a good mom? And I would- Well, I'm actually wondering now that I've been talking about this, if she was reading some popular romance that quoted Shakespeare, but perhaps had more maternal figures in it than Romeo and Juliet, for example. Because I do want to know, too, if she's an 11-year-old who's never gone to public school, where, A, who taught her how to read? Because someone taught her how to read. And B, where did she get her hands on these books? And how is her reading comprehension level such that she can, you know, process an Elizabethan play. It seems more likely to me that she's reading popular fiction that quotes Shakespeare, but that's a completely, well, it's a marginally educated guess that I've come up with in the past 20 minutes. <laughs> and looking at the, the traumas that she had gone through, in addition to her parents dying, which is of course sad, there's the recurring theme of the unwantedness and going to her shallowness, apparently of her red hair, Mrs. Thomas said, I was the homeliest baby she ever saw. I was so scrawny and tiny and nothing but eyes, but that mother thought I was perfectly beautiful. So here we have, Anne is from the start and the story's being told to her, her rejection seems tied up with people's judgment of her physical appearance. But here, where did she get the idea her mother loved her? Well, Mrs. Thomas said so, interestingly enough. Mrs. Thomas said that your mom thought you were pretty. So 
And well, and Mrs. Thomas that says it as a, sorry, go ahead. I was saying, if you're convinced that you're hideous, that actually makes somebody complimenting you all the more compassionate, even though that's not what Mrs. Thomas meant. I think Mrs. Thomas is being mean here. But yeah, Anne Mrs. Is, Thomas means this as a judgment of Anne's mother, not as saying, well, Anne's actually okay and her mother did love her. Yep. But I think it still does plant a seed for Anne that like, she saw me as beautiful. Somebody lived and existed who saw me as beautiful. That can be a kernel of hope that makes that hope constantly being disappointed all the more painful because you're no longer thinking, oh, I'm ugly, I'll never be loved. You know that you're beautiful and can be loved and you keep experiencing that nobody will do it. Well, that's a graveyard of buried hopes right there, I think. Mm, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I do wonder if there's a weird element of insidious classism happening here too. Anne's parents were poor, but they were both teachers and therefore educated. And Mrs. Thomas was the woman who came in to do the scrubbing. So they weren't so poor that they had to do their own scrubbing. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if Anne has this internalized sense of being of a more elite level of society. And therefore that means her parents treated her better than Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond treat their children. And Marilla participates in that a bit too, saying it seems like Anne's parents were nice folks. Mm -hmm. that I, I wonder if there's just an assumption that poor people who have too many children can't possibly love their children as much as better educated people. Because I do think that's what Marilla means when she says Anne comes from nice folks. I think it means she comes from an acceptable class of folks. I had never thought of the possibility of Anne being the classist one. Wow. I think one well, part of the reason I bring that up is that Anne goes on to, sorry, spoiler alert, have seven children of her own. She's saying, oh, Mrs. Hammond had too many children. Three sets of twins is too many. And then Anne and Gilbert have, well, actually total eight children and one doesn't survive. Yes. including one set of twins and then they keep having children after they have one set of twins but so Anne could have had three sets of twins as a servant yeah so you have an yeah. excellent you have a shockingly excellent point uh not that I'm shocked that you came up with the excellent point but that <laughs> I'm shocked Just that the, you didn't I'm shocked at the excellence of the point I do also think that it is a survival technique of people who are told that they're worthless to insist upon their worth themselves because they're not getting it externally and when you are the child who's being told that you are worthless you are also going to be called arrogant and presumptuous and pretentious for asserting your your worth and i have less dramatic but real experience with this in my own life of i had to be a snooty kid who thought i was super smart to drive myself to the academic success that I was consistently told by adults I could never achieve. I went to universities that guidance counselors told me I could not go to. And when I insisted that I could, I was very Anne-like in my talkativeness and seeming arrogance. But it was a survival technique for me, and I think it is for her, that she has to believe that she's bright and capable and to some extent, even if it's vain to Marilla, beautiful. She has to believe these things because 
nobody else yet seems to. And that's clear as well. You see, nobody wanted me even then. It seems to be my fate. This is one reason why when some folks are critical of any adaptation of Anne of Green Gables that shows her not relentlessly smiley, bubbly, and even hints to the fact that her childhood was traumatic. I want to say, at least on that broad point, that's not what this book ever told. That may be how you read it. But if you were reading this as an 11-year-old with parallel experiences, you would not see this as a spunky little redhead only. You would be like, oh, I get it. I see what she's doing here. Yeah, Um, her spunk is not in spite of her trauma. It's to cope with it. Yeah, I I think it's very much uh, an avoidance and numbing technique. And that doesn't make it entirely bad. I want to be clear about that. It's That doesn't mean that there's no scope for imagination. It also doesn't mean that she wouldn't be like that if she hadn't experienced trauma. I, I mean, of course, being human just comes with a baseline level of trauma. Yes. Because that's the human condition. But I, I led a relatively untraumatic childhood. And I still read fiction and applied it to my own life as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And I was avoiding and imagining and distancing myself from reality because it was kind of fun. It was more fun than real life. It was you know, more fun than daydreaming at school was more fun than getting bullied about daydreaming at school. And so I just kept daydreaming so that I didn't notice the bullying as much. Mm-hmm. Some of this is just Anne. I think it's just the way she is. And it's impossible to say where the edge between personality and coping technique is. Oh, for all of us. Of course. This is also why I think it is clever, even though it's going to be painful for both of them, that Lucy Bob Montgomery sets up the relationship of Anne and Marilla as people who cope with very opposite techniques to extremes that are going to be abrasive when they collide. You know, the extremes of imagination and bald facts. But both of them need to learn a little bit from one another. You know, Anne needs to learn how to confront what is definitely true. And Marilla needs to confront the fact that emotions and truth are more complex than a birth date and a name. And to her credit, I think Marilla is starting to get there already by the end of this chapter. I'm actually seeing a more, I'm feeling more generosity towards Marilla in this reading through of this book than I ever have before. But By the end of the chapter, Marilla is thinking Anne came from nice folks. And I think what allows her to get there is hearing the truth of the impropriety of Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond's behavior towards Anne. Marilla sees that Anne's never had, quote, proper upbringing. So, of course, she doesn't behave properly. And Marilla, to her credit, is starting to see what Matthew has already told her. She's starting to see the good that she can do for Anne by being 
an upstanding member of society and a good role model for someone who's essentially never had good role modeling and is doing pretty okay in spite of that. I love it's the narrator speaking, but it does seem to be uh, Marilla's point of view. The child seemed a nice, teachable little thing. Anne is bewitching her, to use Marilla's word from previous chapter. And I enjoy Marilla's self-talk, where she says she's got too much to say, but that might be trained out. And there's nothing rude or slangy in what she says. She's ladylike, and this is where we get, it's likely her people were nice folks. So. So Marilla is chalking up Anne's being okay in spite of having no good role model to good genetics and coming from the right class of people. Which is of course a ludicrous thing to think about the way she speaks. Yes, in terms of how would Anne learn to speak and why would Anne speak this way? If Anne is avoiding being rude or slangy and speaking in high class ways, it's exactly because of her obsession with literature and imagination. Right? So that thing that wanting to, it's perhaps wanting to be distinct from the families she was living with too. Sure. But I so just, it could be like knowing that her parents were different than the people she's been living with and trying to be like her parents, even though she doesn't have direct experience of them. Perhaps, but I was, I was thinking just in terms of actually being competent at it, at being able to speak in a way that Marilla considers not too rude or not too slangy. I just find it interesting because this is something Marilla is complimenting, and yet I'm just imagining this is predicated on some of the very behaviors Marilla finds so exasperating. And couldn't do that without imagination and literature. So... But this is what I mean. They're, they're both extremes who need each other to get a more nuanced and healthy view. And of course, the unfolding of when does Marilla realize she even needs help is a fascinating book-long saga. You know, how much does Anne help Marilla before Marilla even recognizes that she needed any help? Which, yes, Matthew mentions early on that we can do good for Anne, which is a good point. But I think there is a full circle. They expected that the child would help them. Now they have to realize they have to help the child. And then it's going to take a while to realize actually all along, once again, this child helped them. Which is another thing I really want to emphasize when we're talking about children who've gone through trauma, even in well-intentioned ways, better people, the Matthews and Marillas, not the Hammonds, can still fundamentally have a condescending view that the child is broken. And that doesn't mean that the child isn't broken in the sense of having scars and needing healing. But I'm concerned sometimes when children who've gone through trauma are seen as broken in a way that denies that their potential is in fact greatly intact. And this is a real pragmatic issue, not just in our literature, it's in people's hesitancy to work with at-risk and troubled youth, to use those terms in air quotes because there are problematic ways they get used, ways that people view foster care and getting involved in foster care. While certainly Anne is portrayed as exceptional even within the world of this literature, I don't think she's exceptional in terms of what is possible for 
a child who had bad circumstances completely out of their control, if given the opportunity to thrive in whatever their way is. And their way might not be flowers and literature on PEI, although I can't imagine that not helping anybody, but that's <laughs> my personality. Neither can I, and that's why we're doing this podcast and not somebody else. <laughs> yes. It's a slow lesson that I think characters in the book learn and the readers of the book learn too, which is, of course, Anne ends up successful in kind of all the most stereotypical ways of her time and her place. And certainly reading it from a different time and place, we can be critical of that definition of success. But I think there's a great statement that Lucy Maud Montgomery is making by making this very successful woman of the later books start this way to show what is possible with love. That's really cheesy, and I mean it. Happy Valentine's week. <laughs> I have another talking point that I want to dive into a little bit, partly just because I think it's kind of funny. Anne says when she's talking about Mrs. Thomas, whenever I was naughty, Mrs. Thomas would ask how I could be such a bad girl when she had brought me up by hand, reproachful-like. And Anne has right before that said, do you know if there is anything in being brought up by hand that ought to make people who are brought up that way better than other people? So on a, a totally literal level, I'm wondering if this means that Mrs. Thomas hit her because I can't think of how to bring up a child other than by hand. It's not something you can outsource to a machine because that's the only option I can think like you know knitting by hand versus knitting on a machine as I sit here knitting but is what does being brought up by hand mean and also the only thing I'm aware of being referred to as raised by hand other than children is pie crust and so I've been imagining Anne as pie crust being you know raised around the edges and having filling poured in so what do you think about that expression? What is it? What does Mrs. Hammond mean? I mean, Mrs. Thomas, sorry. Well, I admit that my preconceived notion before you brought up the question was that it was corporal punishment. I literally thought that was the only possible interpretation. But I am finding, uh, we see this phrase as well in Great Expectations, and this is research I'm doing live. I don't want to claim to have memorized my Dickens literature as well as I wish I had. That There's also a description there. Pip narrates, My sister was more than 20 years older than I and had established a great reputation with herself and the neighbors because she had brought me up by hand. So we see it again, and there's an interesting debate that follows in an English literature site that I'm looking at right now. I'll share the link in the show notes because I don't want to take credit for these thoughts. There's a debate there about whether or not it means bottle feeding oh. or child abuse. It's an actual open question. But I do think, and then here there's one person arguing that Dickens is being intentionally ambiguous because it could mean both. That's so interesting. I hadn't even Dickens thought about is making bottle feeding, but of course... To the effect that so, of course, uh, if her parents died when she was three months old, she would have been bottle fed. And or if Mrs. Thomas had small children of her own, potentially she could have acted as a wet nurse. But it sounds like that's not at play if she brought Anne up by hand. 
So referring to Dickens using this, one critic writes, this reads to me as Dickens making a play on words to the effect that by hand evokes using the hand corporately as well as not being nursed. And this is an unfamiliar phrase to us, but it's being in Dickens makes me suspect Lucy Maud Montgomery was more familiar with it than we are, shockingly. So it may have just been in common usage at the time. It may have been, but it seems to have uh, a specific meaning for those who are raised not by biological mothers. I had a bottle feed an abandoned kitten who is now an ungrateful middle-aged cat in my home. Uh, I did not know that I could tell her that that I have brought her up by hand. Uh, (laughs) When I adopted my kitten, Hermione, she was pre-weaned, abandoned by her mother. And I had to bottle feed her every two hours, 24-7. It was more intense than having bottle fed my human twins. Oh, which led uh, so adorable. I didn't know that. And it makes it even sadder how much your cat doesn't like you now. She likes me. She just isn't the cuddliest of kittens. She cuddles sometimes. Not as much as I want. But luckily, my human twins are much more cuddly. As a parent of human twins, I do enjoy the subtle anti-twin jokes that happen in this chapter. I only do have one pair, so I can't say much about how many pairs of twins is the acceptable number, but... Well, it seems that Anne is okay with one set of twins. She's okay with her own twins once she has... She's okay enough with her own twins once she has them to keep having more children with the potential of having more twins. It's an interesting thing people do when you have twins. People ask, oh, well, that's a lot. How do you handle it? And you just have to kind of explain, well, they just showed up together. There was, there was no choice in the matter. There, there was Right. It's not, no it's not the having that twins that... It's not the having twins that shows Anne is okay with twins. It's having more kids after her twins. Yes. Spoiling so much. Anne grows up. She gets married. She has children. We won't reveal the name of her husband. Oh, we did. (laughs) Their Their meet cute is coming later. So excited. I think one of the things that is important about discussing Anne's traumatic background is as we look forward to the rest of her adventures and scrapes and interactions we can see a project a trajectory of her initially living in fear particularly fear of rejection and how Anne evolves as she gets rejected less and less to stop fearing it so much and being a human she never gets to a point where she's rejected never you know she's somebody who tries all kinds of ideas and projects and wants to be liked by everybody and won't be But as she gets a foundation of more and more reliable baseline love in her life from various sources, none of those rejections become the sum total of her self-worth or identity. And I, I just think it's really important that I want to have readers, including our listeners, have joy with Anne's growth. But that joy needs to be rooted in understanding her history, where it came from. One does not end up an 11-year-old orphan with an old pair of siblings under ideal circumstances, as idyllic as that may mostly become. Jumping far too ahead to the later books about Anne being a mother herself, I do think that there's a foundation of how does the fear of what her childhood was like shape what she tries to make her children's childhoods. That's a relevant topic for anyone who is in any way working with children, whether as a parent or a teacher or a youth leader in a church or a community setting, 
I will fully own that one of the most important things for me and my work with young people professionally and my raising of my own children is there are very specific things that I don't want them to experience that shape how I do what I do. And then there are things I didn't experience and therefore I don't know to protect people from. Absolutely. And so I'm failing on those, but like the things that I know to protect them from, to what extent will this experience make and somebody who wants to make sure people know that they're beautiful or safe or love is an interesting thing to watch unfold. And we haven't talked about Matthew at all in this chapter because he's not actually on the page in this chapter. My child is contributing to the conversation. I hope you can hear him. <laughs> Charlie is always welcome to add thoughts. But Matthew is the first person who unconditionally wants Anne. And I know we already said that in a previous chapter, but it bears repeating because Matthew's the best and we should appreciate him as much as readerly possible. Oh, and, and I... I, I mean, I appreciate him more every time I read this book, so I'm just going to keep working at it. Yeah. But he, he shows Anne what love can feel like right away from the first time they meet each other. And he's the foil to her graveyard of buried hopes. He's showing her how to keep from burying them in the first place and which ones maybe got planted and will grow instead of being dead and buried. As the chapter ends, I was afraid it might be Mrs. Spencer's place, said Anne mournfully. I don't want to get there. Somehow it will seem like the end of everything. These are the stakes, and I think it's important. We know it's not the end of everything. We know that even if we didn't know the story beforehand because we know that it's chapter four of a book named after this character. We know it's not the end of everything, but we need to know that for Anne, it could be, and that she's not melodramatic. She's not exaggerating. Her fear of being unloved, unwanted, or abandoned is, well, to paraphrase Marilla, I think baldly rational. And this is something I feel very strongly about as one who works with many young people is that I see so frequently adults will look at the fears of children, teens, and young adults with this kind of condescending, oh, stop being so melodramatic, when in fact they're not being melodramatic. You're being unempathetic. The stakes are this high. Anne has every good reason to believe she's going to be abandoned yet again. It's not delusional based on the patterns of behavior throughout her life or Marilla's behavior in even having this carriage ride to think that that's what's happening. That's another you know, real life point I want to make about dealing with children who've gone through trauma. You know, point three that we're looking for in Anne's behavior that isn't particularly in this chapter, but is in her personality, is this increased arousal, the dramatic responses to seemingly small stimulus. I think it's important to look for the ways that the arousal is not actually absurd or over the top. It just might not be about the thing that you think they're reacting to. So if you're dealing with a child who is utterly despondent about red hair, it's not about the hair. It's about being convinced that they are unlovable because of how they look. 
And that's not because they're vain. It's because they've literally been told that by powerful people who didn't love them. So there's always something we can get down below when we're working with and caring for those melodramatic young people. And I do think there's a risk when we're reading fiction and empathizing with fictional characters who, much as it pains us to admit, never existed. That, Shut as up. you said, <laughs> listen, I, I named my sister after Anne because I couldn't deal with there not being an Anne with an E in my life. So I'm right there with you. But it, it's too easy to say, oh, we know it's not the end of everything because it's chapter five. It's a trap that the author wants us to fall into and experienced readers of fiction won't unless we switch ourselves to empathy mode instead of literary analysis mode. And I say this looking at my diploma in English literature over my desk that literary analysis is not useful for practicing empathy with real people in the world. Imagination is so much more important for fiction being valuable in our lives than knowing how that fiction is constructed. That being able to feel Anne's distress is, is more important than logically knowing that she's probably going to stay with Marilla, even if you haven't read this book before, because it allows us to practice feeling that distress along with people in the real world who don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It allows us to feel that distress with ourselves when we don't know what's going to happen. The whole world is in a state of upheaval and uncertainty right now. And my home life has been a magnification of that. We took a two month break from podcasting because first my wool stash was invaded by moths, which at the time was incredibly traumatic. And then a week after that, my family was emergency evacuated from our apartment, which then made the moth incident seem less traumatic in retrospect, but it wasn't when I was living through it. Mm -hmm. If I had been reading that novel for the second time, I would have thought, oh, moths. That's nothing compared to what's coming. But at the time, it felt like the end of the world. It was the end of a couple knitting projects, which was really upsetting. It continues to be really upsetting, even though I've had a more upsetting event in the interim. Yeah. No, it's always a big deal. It's okay to be a grown-up and to call your mom crying because you broke your favorite coffee cup. Not that I've done that in the past six months. It was a year ago. The key memories to this trend in human behavior when I was around 18 or 19, one of my colleagues at work died. And it was very sudden and unexpected. It was a workplace where most people were middle-aged, but my colleague who passed away was only in his early 20s. So he's one of my fellow vaguely young folk in, in the workplace. And I initially found out because my dad heard about it on the radio news before it even got through the channels of communication amongst friends and coworkers. I remember then I had to go to work where he and I worked together. My dad told me what happened and I just said, okay, wow. And then I got dressed and I went and I drove halfway to work and then realized I was running low on gas. I don't know what happened. I had the most moderate of problems getting the 
gas nozzle to send gas into my car. I was jiggling, like, I just, the gas wasn't going in my car. And I absolutely broke down sobbing at a gas station because I couldn't get the nozzle in my car right. And I dealt with a very compassionate gas station attendant who probably, well, maybe this gas station attendant was more empathetic than I knew that they could be, but it looked like I was having a complete emotional breakdown because I didn't know how to work the gas tank nozzle. Of course, that wasn't why I was sobbing. It was, I was pretending everything was okay. I was doing the avoidance and numbing technique. And then a very minor thing went wrong and I snapped into an increased arousal. And that experience, even before reading anything about PTSD or knowing the list of items, has helped me understand that when somebody is behaving in a way that is completely over the top and disproportionate to whatever just happened, they probably are not reacting to only what just happened. This is critical in my church work. It's critical in customer service to understand that somebody who's screaming at you about the sale price might be a jerk or they might not know how to pay their rent and literally that extra 20% that they suddenly discovered they have to pay for the small item at your store is breaking them. It's it's not that people can't be overdramatic jerks sometimes, but we need to understand that that shouldn't be our default assumption. And that Marilla, I think, does come to learn when Anne is being over the top which to a certain baseline, we're dealing with a, a novel about a tween girl. It would be weird if she wasn't over the top. That would, yeah, that would be the, that would, that's where we'd be concerned that, oh, she's overly avoidant and numbing. And I think this, this is a real issue too, that uh, I've seen many children who deal with trauma go through is adults actually expect them to be an exact amount of sad. And if they're too sad, that's bad. But actually if they're playing and having fun, we judge that too. We, we can put kids who've gone through trauma in this impossible position of like, please intuitively perform the correct amount of grief according to our standards, which we've never communicated to you. Well, and that happens all the time in other situations with adults too. It's not just children. Although I think adults are more likely to judge children harshly than other adults. Adults are more likely to judge their own children harshly than other adults too, to a certain extent. But in... I'm going to reveal a guilty pleasure. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and it's always seen as a sign of guilt if the person on trial isn't performing the appropriate amount of sadness, Mm -hmm. which is just completely missing the point. It's I've, I've definitely seen high profile cases where they, well, she must've done it because she wasn't so sad. Like, well, that's not how, things work because if somebody's sobbing then you accuse them of being performative there's no winning and you just can't look at someone and know by their face what's going on inside i'm sorry that that's not how people work and if people think that's how people work they're just simply wrong no one has that kind of intuition yes which is uh leads to so many other wonderful topics about how people uh, judge one another and perceive and overestimate their ability to read one another. 
you know, Marilla and Rachel think they know how to read Anne, and therefore they misread her. And Matthew thinks he has no idea how to read Anne, and therefore he listens to her. And what a difference that makes. Anne's gone through a lot, and she's afraid that it might be the end of everything. And I look forward to discussing next time what it's the beginning of. Thanks for listening to Kindred Spirits. Follow us on Facebook at Kindred Spirits Podcast, on Twitter at Kindred Spirits P, and on Instagram at Kindred Spirits P. On our website, kindredspiritspodcast.ca, you can find show notes, links to us on all social media and podcast platforms, and information on how to follow or contact us individually. Thank you to our founding Patreon supporters, Sarah K, Marilyn B, Anne M, Connor H.B., Marie-André, and Jennifer O. If you would also like to support our ambitions and help us build our castles in the sky, you too can support us on patreon.com slash kindredspiritspodcast, as well as subscribing on your podcaster of choice and leaving a review. Our theme music is Desperates and Across the Causeway from Algoma Highway, composed by Ari Vandeven and performed by the Cygnus Trio, which includes me. You can buy our music and learn more at thesignistrio.com. Anne of Green Gables was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Episodes are written by us, Erica Jacobs Perkins and Jean Daniello Danaha. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. I have a piece of advice to offer before we go. Earth. I think it's a piece of advice for Marilla, actually, that Matthew will sort of have to later. So, spoiler alert. And my advice to Marilla is buy Anne something pink. Buy her a pink hair ribbon. Buy her a pink, I don't know, hat. Something. Because A, anyone can wear any color they want to. Being told you can or can't wear a color has nothing to do with your complexion and everything to do with the people around you. But B, a light, clear pink looks good on everyone. I don't know what Anne's talking about. Redheads can't wear, wear pink. Light pink will look beautiful on Anne, and Marilla should get her something pink. Matthew will get her something pretty later, but it's not actually pink, even though it should be. I love it. Everybody should wear more pink. Or at least Everybody. Everybody should feel free, too. Pink is my favorite I told- color. I'm unashamed of this. I am not a redhead, so maybe that's why. But, you know, we certainly have other ways we tell people what they may and may not like. And it really took me till my 30s to have the self-confidence to identify as a man whose favorite color is pink. So we I st- told Charlie's godmother it's part of her godmotherly duties to make sure Charlie's all well, always well supplied with pink clothing.